And uh, as I mentioned, there are several episodes of healing miracles in the book of Acts. That's primarily where we're looking. Of course, there are many healings in the Gospels. Uh, we, Jesus performing many healings in the Gospels. And we may occasionally refer to those. Uh, and even in the Old Testament, we have prophets who, who do healings too, correct? So, uh, so it's not just a New Testament thing. It is also something that is experienced by the Old Testament church or the Old Testament believers, the people of Israel. Um, but we, we don't read very much about miracles and healings after Acts. Um, like in the epistles, I can think of maybe one or two references to miracles in the epistles section of the New Testament. In Acts, they exist, and in the Gospels, of course, too. So, I, like I mentioned, there are several healing miracles. After we finish this section, I'll talk about, uh, perhaps next week, the uh, miracle of exorcism, which there are a couple of examples of that in the book of Acts. And numerous exorcisms in the Gospels. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, exorcism is, is not a daily <laughs> thing we encounter, um, but it is biblical in, in some sense. And uh, it is part of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and I think it's still part of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, so, I, so I want to talk about it. Um, all right. And in doing that, it won't just be about episodes, specific moments of casting out devils. It'll, it'll also be a conversation on, uh, on the devil in, in general and, and what it means for what he means, what the, our beliefs about him are as Christians. Uh, uh, Christians who are, are Bible-based, Bible believers, do believe that there is a devil. Uh, that, uh, that there are fallen angels, which the New Testament calls uh, demons or unclean spirits or, or, or fallen, fallen angels. So, so anyway, that is a part of life. That is a part of not just being a Christian, but part of being a human on earth in its fallen nature, fallen order as we know it. So, okay, so that's, that's next time. Healings. The one that we started to look at was Acts chapter 3. So we'll start there. Acts chapter 3. And um, uh, probably, hopefully, the whole chapter. Now, we already read the actual healing part. This was two weeks ago. Maybe I'll quickly review it. But there was, in the first 11 verses or so, uh, 10 verses, there's the, there's the healing story that occurs. It's, it's Peter and John who are uh, going up to the temple to pray. This is uh, still a normal occurrence for the Christians, that, uh, for the early Christians, that they pray. They follow the Jewish traditions on praying. Okay, I, I, would, I would contend that they are not practicing, or at least pretty quickly, not practicing sacrifice. Um, I, I, would, I would argue that the, that the early Christians stopped offering sacrifices in the temples um, because Christ himself is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our Passover Lamb. He is the sacrifice uh, that ends all sacrifice. So, so the, generally, the early Christians, the apostles, would not be... The, there were, there were um, we, we know, there were Jewish Christians or Jewish believers of all sorts in the first couple of centuries 
not all of them that we might necessarily consider orthodox in, in terms of, strictly speaking, the apostolic teachings. So there were, there were variations, just like there were Gentiles, too. I mean, there were all kinds of splits and groups and splinters. But, uh, but we are aware of some early Jewish Christians, um, and, and, and some of them, I would say, Christian in a loose sense of the term. Um, people that believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but perhaps not that he was the Son of God. So that wouldn't be uh, what we would recognize as Orthodox Christianity, but it's, it's, it's something nearby. And, and so we know those sorts of things existed. So it's very, very likely that as long as the temple existed, which was until the year 70, the Romans knocked it down in the year 70 and destroyed Jerusalem entirely in 135. Um, so there's no... No, no option to sacrifice after that. But, um, so it's very possible that some early Christians were continuing with that practice. But, but for sure, the apostolic community is following the prayer, um, prayer practices. And remember, when, even when Christians were worshiping on the Lord's Day, when you read in the Bible, uh, the book of Acts, when you read in the book of Acts the phrase, the Lord's Day, Okay, it is referring to Sunday. Okay, so when they worshipped on the Lord's Day, it's called the Lord's Day because the Lord was risen on a Sunday. Now the early Christians very likely continued to observe the Sabbath in some way. They, uh, the Sabbath being the seventh day, right? I mean, we kind of know the calendar. Um, you know, Saturday and um, is the seventh day of the week. We tend to structure our calendar. So it has been customary to have your calendar, and maybe most of you still do this, Sunday at the beginning, Saturday at the end. But I'm now noticing calendars for sale that have Monday at the beginning and Saturday and Sunday together at the end. Okay, whatever. There's no law about that sort of thing. But, uh, but in the Bible, Sunday is the first day of the week. Okay? And, um, and that's... that's that's all it was until the Christian uh, uh, moment in, in, in history. <coughs> uh, Jesus. Uh, so Sabbath day worship, Sabbath practice, even as, as observant Jews would do today, Sabbath practice refers to, well, Friday evening through Saturday. Because, you know, the Jews calculate the beginning of a day at sundown, not midnight. So, uh, so the beginning of the Sabbath is Friday sundown. Uh, because, why is that? Because in the book of Genesis, when it says God created the world, if each day, Genesis 1, it, he says what he created on the first day, the second day, and it begins each of those sections by saying, there was evening and morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. So the Jews read that and said, okay, that's how we count a day. Evening and morning. Evening and to the next, till the next evening. Um, so the Sabbath... Okay, so Christians, uh, early Christians, well, we know Paul and the apostles would still go to synagogue uh, on the Sabbath, but they would gather as Christians on the, Lord, the morning of the Lord's Day to weekly commemorate Easter. That's why in my opening prayer I said uh, something about as we recognize the resurrection of your son today. Not that today is our, our big Easter, but every Sunday is a little Easter. All right, it's uh, it's it's a recognition of uh, of the resurrection of Jesus, and in our liturgical calendar, in our tradition, 
if we practice the tradition of observing the church year, you know, Lent, okay? Lent is that 40-day period before Easter, right? Lent is usually seen as a time of uh, a little more somber in tone, uh, focus on repentance, preparation. That's Lent. But in that period before Easter, the Sundays in that period are never Lent. Okay? The, the Sundays are, you don't count Sunday. When you count Lent, the period, you don't count the Sundays. Okay? Uh, because Sunday's always Easter. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, so the early Christians, they're probably going to synagogue where they're hearing the scriptures read, where they're hearing preaching, and very likely they're teaching. Um, uh, synagogue worship in the first century was, uh, it had a liturgy. It had a format. <clears throat> we don't know a lot about it, but we know that there was a format uh, and that there was scripture readings. The format in the synagogue would have been scripture, psalm, or hymn, uh, scripture, psalm, hymn, and some kind of homily, and very likely debate or discussion occurred, and there would be prayer as well. We know there was prayer. Uh, temple worship is sacrifice and prayer and praise and things like that too. But uh, synagogue worship, and we actually, I probably mentioned this before, we actually don't know very much about what, where synagogues come from because they're not in the Old Testament. Right? There are no synagogues in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned. There are t there's the temple and sometimes there's more than one temple. Uh, and there's home worship. Um, but, uh, but synagogues, uh, they just appear in between and here they are in the Gospels. But they were more word-oriented. Okay, they were, they were um, if, if the Old Testament or if the Jewish religion, the, the Old Covenant religion was word and sacrament, like, Christ, like Christian religion, word and sacrament, that's what they were doing. Sacrament meaning essentially like the sacrificial services in the temple. The sacrifices could only happen in the temple. That's why when you knock down the temple, the sacrifices go away. You can only do them in the temple, in Jerusalem, lawfully. I mean, there were people doing it. We know there was a first century temple in Egypt, um, but it, you know, it, you know, you're not supposed to do those things. It's supposed to Jerusalem, so that gets destroyed. So that's why, and that's when the synagogue becomes very the center. So modern Jews, that is what they do. Even if they call it a temple, some some of the um, more liberal Jews will call their house of worship a temple. It's not really it, it, because the temple has to do with uh, the priesthood, the sacrifices, and so forth. And the temple can never be rebuilt. Right? So there are some within Christianity uh, who are of the mindset that, uh, you know, very pro-Israel, which is fine, uh, not, you know, but that they, that they support the idea. There are some Christians, especially in America, that support the idea of rebuilding the temple. It's kind of a, um, a dispensational, millennial kind of thing, but to rebuild the temple. But that um, uh, you know, that would be a bit blasphemous <laughs> uh, for a Christian. Um, and, but that'll never happen. And even if it did occur, uh, the, uh, the priests are, uh, we don't know, the priests have to be biologically descended uh, from Aaron, and we have no idea who these are. Okay, so that's a little bit. Uh, hello, Vicar. <laughs> uh, former student of mine, uh, you all probably remember. Welcome, glad you're here. <coughs> All right, so I'm just trying to give you a little bit of the Jewish-Christian context of the New Testament. 
of the first century. We know that Paul, wherever he went, would start out by going to the synagogues to reason with the people that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So what is the scripture for the first Christians? It's the old te- what we call the Old Testament. There was The New Testament is not written immediately. It's a couple of decades, most likely, of, you know, I mean, it can't, the, the New Testament, um, because if you believe, and I do, if, if you believe that the apostles are the ones who wrote the New Testament, not that some later generation did it, um, as, as some skeptics would say, but if you, if you believe the apostles wrote them, well, it has to be, all have to be done before they were martyred. So, uh, Paul is martyred in the mid-60s, so all these date from that time. Um, before the temple is destroyed. If that comes from about 60, then, um, or late 50s, then it's before the temple is destroyed. So Paul goes, he reasons to them from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that Jesus is the promised one. And even when they go to church on Sunday morning, when they read the Bible, until much later, when they read the Bible, they're reading the Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament. They just call it the Bible. Okay? Um, scripture. And uh, so they're reading the prophets. They're reading the Torah, the books of Moses. The Psalms or their hymnal. And uh, for the early Christians I'm speaking of now. This is how they, this is how they worship until, until much later. When the New Testament texts are around. Um, and, uh, uh, um, okay. So I think that's all I'm going to say about... Uh, I only mention all of that is because in Acts chapter 3, um, it begins in the verse 1 uh, that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Okay? So why are they doing that? Because they're still to some degree following the Jewish practice, uh, prayer practice that they, that, they, that they grew up with, that they knew, and, uh, and that Jesus did. Okay? That Jesus did. Um, so, so that uh, that that was fine. The um, it says the ninth hour. I'm looking at, at uh, Acts three verse one. It says the ninth hour, which is going to be three. What well, we you know three p.m. So it's the afternoon prayer uh, that was done daily. Uh, it says um, I think it says later. Okay, so yeah. So um, so there's a man lame from birth uh, carried whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Uh, what a uh, fortuitous location to do that. If you're going up to pray, you're in a mindset of piety. And so that would be a... But the giving of alms to the poor was a serious obligation for the Jews. This was not um, some kind of minor thing, you flip them a quarter. Uh, the giving of alms was a serious expectation, a, a serious requirement uh, of, of the Jewish faith. So, uh, so him being there uh, would not be something in itself to look down on. Okay. Um, now, uh, there, is, there is an interesting, uh, another twist to this. Uh, it says he was lame, okay, so that means that he uh, had some uh, form of physical disability that prevented him from walking because they had to carry him. And he was this way from birth. So it's not an injury. He didn't have a spinal cord injury because he wasn't wearing a helmet while he rode his motorcycle. Um, he was born with some... Now, Levitical law, the book of Leviticus, the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, which is full of the legal material for temple worship. 
you ever read the book of Leviticus, um, you'll notice that's what a lot of it is, is temple ritual code. And um, it's actually quite interesting to read, and um, I, I commend it to you, but I would recommend a good study guide to follow with. Because um, it can be, what does this mean, right? Um, and for that, if you're willing to do a little uh, serious study ever on the book of Leviticus, the way to do that would be to get a commentary, a book of comment on that book. And the one I recommend is by John Kleinig. He's a, uh, he's a Lutheran professor, I think he's retired, but a Lutheran professor at uh, a seminary in Australia, Adelaide, Australia. And he has written, uh, published by Concordia Publishing House, he has written a, a really fantastic comment. He's written a couple for us. He wrote one on the book of Hebrews, which has got lots of tie-ins to temple stuff. So it's, you, it's understandable why he did that, wrote that. But if you take his book on Leviticus and read the, act, the, the biblical book of Leviticus, if you ever want to do a serious, maybe you've done it, I don't know, maybe pastor has done that here. But that's a thing to do, I'd recommend at some point. So they're at the temple. Well, one of the laws in Leviticus um, would have made it prohibitive for someone with a uh, physical imperfection, a physical disability, to enter the temple. So this man, from birth, Okay, has never entered the temple because it's forbidden. Okay, uh, uh, you know uh, the Lamb of God, uh, the Lamb uh, to be sacrificed, the Passover Lamb was to be without blemish. That's what it's about. So the Passover Lamb uh, was to be a lamb without blemish. Why? Perfect. Yeah, yeah, a perfection. Um, also, because um, if you are a lamb owner, <laughs> and you have lambs, you have sheep, and you knew annually you had to, you were required to sacrifice one of them at the temple for Passover, you might be tempted to pick the one that is sickly. Because you got to sacrifice it anyway. So it's less loss. It's less of a sacrifice. So the requirement that the lamb should be without blemish. Jesus is now uh, the lamb of God who is without blemish, meaning sin, right? He's sinless, perfect, righteous, holy and righteous one. And so the priest in the temple was to be without blemish. You couldn't be ordained a priest. I mean, really, any, if you were missing a thumb, you couldn't be a priest, even if you were descended of Aaron. Kind of way, but even for non-priests, this is just where I'm getting getting at. For a non-priest, a, a layman, like the man in Acts three, because he had this uh, disability, this uh, he was lame from birth. He had never been permitted into the temple precincts ever. And for a Jew, th that's I mean, we might see that as kind of harsh because. The temple is God's house. Uh, of course, the earth is the Lord's and all that is within it. But the temple in Jerusalem was God's house in a special way. So to be in the temple is to be in the courts of the Lord, to be in the precincts of the living God. But you're not permitted. Okay? So, um, you know, uh, there was even a court of Gentiles, but he couldn't go there. 
Okay, so he's not in, able to go in the temple. Now, I bring this up because later on he goes in the temple with the apostles, and that is a significant detail. So, uh, so he's outside the temple, on the ground, uh, seeking alms, and the disciples, uh, Peter and John, uh, come up to him, and um, he asked, verse 3, he asked them to receive alms. Verse 4, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Uh, they saw him. Okay? The people, people that are um, beggars, or people that are disabled in some way, are often not seen in society. Correct? Um, I think this is a, a serious flaw in, in society. It's a serious flaw in the world that, uh, that, we, that we don't notice or we don't pay as much attention to people that are different in any way. Um, but people on the social margins, which certainly then would have included people uh, like our man here, uh, our nameless man. So he would... Uh, he would not have been seen so much. I mean, you know, you throw him a coin, but you're not really interested in him. Um, but, uh, uh, but uh, you know, Peter and John, they directed their gaze at him. This humanizes him. Okay? It, 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 it uh, presents him as one with dignity, nobility, as a human. To look to stay and look at another human being um, is a way to recognize them as, a, as, a, um, as an equal or as a, um, a co-human. And as I wish to bring out, when I speak of healings in general and exorcisms, one of the results of the fall into sin is a kind of dehumanization that has occurred. Genesis chapter 3, as a result of sin, Adam and Eve are cursed to die, and all their descendants. Not only that, but cursed to have pain uh, in the generation of life. It's particularly painful. Um, they, the, their work will be hard and no, not joyful. It will be sweat and thorns. So life, all of life, even creation itself, is affected by the fall into sin. Everything, everything is corrupt. It's tainted. It's polluted. It's spoiled. It's distorted. Okay? Uh, which includes all human beings. Now there's this sin problem um, and the devil issue <laughs> and death um, but uh, there is also this at least for us sinners uh, the, the strong tendency to dehumanize each other. To forget that our fellow human beings are likewise created in the image of God and are likewise redeemed by the blood of Christ. So that's why we have a propensity to ignore people we don't like, to treat people with disdain who are of another uh, race, nation, tribe, language, culture, um, physical ability, uh, age, um, uh, you know, um, uh, someone is in a womb, someone is in uh, uh, an uh, intensive care unit. It, we, we view people now so much, so often, as means to an end. 
what, if you don't provide for me or if you don't provide very much for society. In fact, if you are a drain on society, you are lower, even if we don't say it explicitly, we act it. You're lower in terms of your value. So to, to give value to another human being because they're human, you know, of course, you, if you know m me as, a, uh, as I teach in bioethics, this is a big topic for me. Uh, it's a really big topic for me, is that uh, human beings are, uh, what is a human being? Not simply a hairless biped, <laughs> you know, a hairless ape uh, who can speak, right? I mean, um, w the, no. We have a dignity as created by the Creator. Because all the things God created, He spoke into creation, except man, which He created by the act of His hand in, on the soil. It was more, He got His hands dirty. So, uh, the dignity of human beings. Uh, um, I'm convinced that if we can keep that in our minds as Christians, we can keep that in the forefront of our minds, it will do at least two things. It will, it will help us to treat each other ethically, and it will um, present us with some comfort, too, to, to know that, you know, um, I'm, not, I'm not worthless. Okay, sin has, because I'm sinful, I have nothing to bring to God. So in a sense, I could, you can say, I'm, I'm worthless, I have no worth, I have no value to bring to God. But in another sense, because I still remain a creature of God. The fall into sin has not made me a beast, or a plant, or a stone. <laughs> I'm still a man. And so because of that, I still retain some dignity in terms of all creation. It doesn't save me. It doesn't give me any additional access to, to, the, to salvation. But there's a kind of human dignity that is not erased with the fall. Okay, it's greatly impaired, but there's a kind of human dignity that is not erased by the fall. So therefore, that's what I mean when I say you're not worthless. Okay. Uh, don't mistake that to be some kind of pop psychological uh, uh, attempt at self-esteem building. It, not quite like that. It's not quite how I mean that. But more, more in, in the sense that uh, as a uh, child of God or as a creature of God uh, 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 in the image of God, redeemed by Christ, uh, you know, Christ did not come to redeem the, the, the cows. He came to redeem man. And all creation benefits from that. But okay, so this dignity aspect uh, is is reflected oh, even in this small way. Uh, and Jesus does this all the time. There are people that others don't know, don't see. A Samaritan woman, a sinful woman, who comes to bathe his feet. I mean, uh, the, the Syrophoenician woman, a, a foreigner. Who touches him? Who was that? I mean, Jesus looks and sees people that others don't. Okay? Um, the disciples, Peter and John, they looked at him. He looked at them. Um, another way to do this is to ask someone their name. That, you know, I mean, that, that, to, that, gives, that gives you an intimacy. It's the beginning of a kind of intimacy, to know your name. Um, now here I don't see that, uh, but other times, but other times that is important. You know, w w your name, or we know their name, and uh, they look at him. He looks at them, and he expected to receive something from them. Uh, what did he expect to receive? Uh, silver and gold, and that's not bad. 
it doesn't mean he is guilty of the deadly sin of greed. Okay? This is how uh, a person in his position in life would be would live. And um, uh, we, we are not to look at this man or, or beggars in the Bible um, in the sense of, oh, they, you know, um, you know, if you, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. You know, I mean, no, he, you know, this is truly someone that has no means. The means that's been instituted by God is that you, in this case, in, the, in, in Israel, is that you, you give to them. So, but Peter and John, they're not the ones to go to when you're looking for silver and gold. <laughs> we know that. Uh, they're not the, if that's what you're looking for, that's, they're not the best ones to ask. They don't have any. But, um, because what we, um, if you, why don't they have any silver and gold? Because in Acts 2, right before this, which we didn't read, but Acts 2, right before this, it says that they, that all the Christians shared everything. Okay? Now, I don't think that is prescriptive, requiring modern Christians to be uh, some kind of socialist or whatever. I don't think that's what it's saying we must do, but it is saying what they did do, that they sold everything and shared uh, with each other. So he doesn't own anything, <laughs> so you can't give him anything. Um, but he gives him something better. Um, silver and gold pass away. Um, uh, not, not, not easily. I mean, <laughs> gold doesn't rust or uh, or get eaten by moths. Or I mean, that's why it's valued, right? Is that it? It doesn't fade away very much. But in the e e eternal scheme of things, gold and silver are temporal. And he gives him something uh, more. Okay, he heals him, but the healing of his body is. Uh, is not just um, you know uh, uh, another earthly a substitute earthly benefit, and I'll explain myself. This is not just about making this man physically able to walk. That is a huge part of it. I do not diminish that, and for him, <laughs> that was great. He, you know, he was so pleased because from birth he had never experienced walking. And uh, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He took him by his right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And verse 8, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. There it is. He's never been. He's been just out the outside, but he goes into the temple. He's now in the presence of God in a new way. I'm not saying that he wasn't saved before, um, but, uh, but this is a blessing more than just, is, than, than, than even just a physical thing, as magnificent as that is, too. And uh, he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping. He keeps that up <laughs> and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God. Now, the leaping is, uh, is, is, is wonderful and lovely and, uh, and we like it, but it's not only to show us the exuberance of his happiness. Okay? Because if you haven't been, ever been able to walk and instantly you can now walk, you might want to dance. Okay? That's what he's doing. He's dancing around. He's, um, but this isn't just about that, and I'm looking for my reference now, but... Um, in, 
uh, in Isaiah. I wish I could find the exact passage here. Um, I'll find it eventually. Uh, yeah, okay, Isaiah 35. Okay, you don't have to look it up right now. You can write it down. Isaiah 35, uh, verses 5 through 6. Speaking of the new creation, Isaiah the prophet says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So, uh, uh, sight, hearing, leaping, singing. That's the restoration of the new creation which the Messiah brings. Isaiah foresaw it, that there would be a day when all those things that, that are like bondage to us now, including, I mean, uh, sin and forgiveness is of course this, but there's also a very uh, a physical impact too that it has. So that prophecy is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus and in the apostles. Okay? In the church. The life of the church is bringing the new creation in its preaching and sacraments, is bringing the new creation into the world, into being, breaking through until the final day of completion, which we long for. Okay? So, uh, why does Luke, who records this in the book of Acts, use this language? He could just say something else, but uh, um, I, I, you're, you're to think of Isaiah. You're to think that this leaping like a deer is being fulfilled. It's happening. And um, when I get to the next section here and talk, and, and we discuss the, the sermon that Peter gives to explain what he has done, then, uh, then even more of that new creation fulfillment, um, the interruption of decay that Jesus brings will be apparent. Uh, praising God. And, um, and all the people, ver verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat, sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. So, um, I'm filled with wonder and amazement at how hot I am up here talking. So, I'm going to take off my jacket. He, uh, okay, they're, they're filled with wonder and, and amazement when they see this. Um, okay. Now, we, let's do some uh, brand new material. We're going to get into Acts 3, verse 11. And I'll try to read through as much of chapter 3 as we can today, so I'll be doing a bit more reading. Then, um, okay, uh, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, uh, why do you wonder at this? Okay, so why are you surprised? Why are you uh, filled with wonder and amazement and astounded? Why? Is not this what Jesus said he would do? Why, why are you surprised? Um, the location even so, uh, the, the portico called Solomon's. This was a part of the temple along the eastern wall where there were double marble columns uh, roofed with cedar. Okay? This is a place where Jesus taught. Jesus walked and taught in this place. So the apostles go here with this man and they are saying, don't be surprised 
this is what's supposed to, is what Isaiah said would happen in the name of Jesus, in the name of the, uh, of the coming one. All right, verse 12. Now, verse 12 and following is the sermon where Peter interprets the healing a bit more. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, or I said that, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as that by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Okay? Peter's sermons in Acts are all very Christ-centered. Okay? Preachers learn from this. All his sermons are very Christ-centered. He gets to the point quickly. There's law and gospel. And he always, as far as I can recall, preaches the resurrection. Okay. Uh, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare? 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over. Okay. Now he's going to name, in this next two verses, he's going to list four ways that the men of Israel, or the men of Jerusalem, or, you know, he's, he's blanketing the world, okay? These are the four things you have done to the one that the God of Israel, the God, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent. This is what you did. He lists four things you did. He says, um, you uh, uh, delivered over and denied, I guess I'm counting that as one. Delivered, uh, so five things. Uh, you, he, you delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Now for Peter to mention this is a bit bold. <laughs> had he not denied the Lord Jesus on the night of his arrest three times? Yes, he did. But he had been absolved, okay, by the Lord Jesus, okay? He had been absolved and, um, and so, the sin, his sin is, is east from the west. So this isn't him being a hypocrite. Now, if, if a preacher commits a sin, the preacher should be humbled and, um, you know, when they preach about that sin. But it doesn't exempt them from ever mentioning it, right? I mean, because, you know, he can't say, oh, I can't mention the denial because I did that. Okay, he's not, he's not claiming to be better than them. In fact, he's specifically saying, I'm not more pious than you. This is not about my holiness. It's about the holiness of the one that you denied, delivered to Pilate, even though Pilate had decided to release him. In that line, who's the good guy? The Roman. Right, there's so much here. Uh, the, the, you know, in that case, Ro uh, Pilate was basically innocent. Right? Um, fas I, fascinating the way Pilate gets portrayed in the New Testament when he does get mentioned. Um, okay, so you, uh, you delivered and denied. Verse 14, you denied, so there it is again, you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So I don't know if that's four or five things. It's several things. They denied, delivered, uh, denied again, and killed. Okay. That's what they did to the Savior, to the fulfillment. Um, I, I want to dwell on, on that passage for a moment, but I will pause. Uh, so I can get a drink of coffee and see if anybody has a question.
Anybody comments or question at this point? Okay. And um, so, okay, th I'll do 13 and 14 again. He glorified his servant. See, we're always, we're always walking, uh, we're always stepping in the thin water of Isaiah. Isaiah could be called the fifth evangelist. Because he says so much, so clearly about the Christ. Including, in Isaiah 53, the very famous, you know, he is the ser suffering servant. The servant of God. You have killed his servant. That's a, that's a, that's a meaningful verse, okay? And uh, you he is the holy and righteous one. Um, in verse 14, holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Who's that? Remember the Gospels? Barabbas. The, the, the trial, uh, you know, Pilate is trying to, um, in his own way, trying to uh, get Jesus um, exonerated, not exonerated, but out of trouble by following a custom of his, which was to release at the beckon of the people one of those who he has in, in his prison. And thinking they would choose this man, but they choose that man. The murderer, okay? The people, uh, according to Peter, had wanted a, a, there to be a, a switch. They wanted the innocent man to be condemned and the guilty man to be acquitted. And that is, in a way, very important way, is the main way. That, why, that is the gospel. That is what Jesus came to do for the world, for you me. He is the innocent one. Now, um, Peter mentioned this. I'm not saying, Bara I don't know, did Barabbas become converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I, I have no idea. Um, um, but he is a type or a representation of the world. He is the murderer. He is the sinner who is, uh, who is uh, set free because the innocent one, the holy and righteous one, substituted. Okay? Um, this is, so, um, so even though the people of Israel did not mean it in any kind of gospelly way, they inadvertently fulfilled God's purpose in more ways than one. Okay? But, uh, but I think that swip, what was the word I'm trying to switch? That switcheroo of the innocent for the guilty is uh, representative of the whole gospel. Uh, verse 15, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. There's the resurrection. Okay, so, so he always preaches the resurrection. Um, killed the author of life. That's a very... Uh, a keen turn of phrase. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a contradiction. You killed the, the author of life, the, the living one. Now, um, if we were uh, really wanting to do a deep dive 
in uh, uh, the, the theology of, of Christ's nature. If we want to do a really deep dive on what theologians call Christology, this would be a key verse. Uh, because here we see a, um, the humanity of Jesus and his divinity of Jesus being taught in one place. So uh, the idea that Jesus is God in the flesh is not some later interpolation or some later insertion by later Christians. Already they understand that he is, he is God in the flesh. Because only the flesh can die and yet he's also the author of life. So there's a, the, what we would call in our language pre-Nicene Creed, we would call the, the two natures one, one person in Christ. Okay? Uh, human and, and, and divine. Verse 15. To this we are witnesses, uh, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Okay, um, whose name? Let's go through it. Verse 6, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Okay, then um, uh, uh, verse... 13, uh, uh, the servant, okay, Jesus, God's servant, Jesus. Then verse 14, holy and righteous one and um, author of life. So that's, the, you know, when it says in verse uh, 16 and by his name, it's, he, he's wrapping all that together. Okay, so comments, questions? Yes, I see a hand. Good man. I do not hear you. <coughs> no batteries. Sorry, I didn't do. I'll repeat it so the people on TV land can hear. So in the beginning was the Word, right? Okay, and the Word was God, the Word was with God. Um, I, I mean, John, John's Gospel is, is oh, oh, you know, certainly written later, okay? But John and Peter are both here, <laughs> incidentally, in this text, okay? So uh, Peter's the one preaching here, but John is also there, okay? And Peter's always the spokesman, but that doesn't mean the others aren't talking, okay? So I don't know... If there's one who's borrowing from the other or supporting the other or in any way preceding the other, they are both witnesses of Jesus. The, I mean, they both... I mean, uh, Peter and John are kind of the dynamic duo because when the women came and told the disciples, we have seen the risen Lord. Who is it that had to check it out? Okay, Peter and John says, ran, kind of a foot race, ran to see. So Peter and John are, I mean, simultaneously witnesses of the risen Jesus and simultaneously working in the name of Jesus. So I, 
I mean, when, when Peter can identify Jesus of Nazareth as the holy and righteous one, the servant of God foretold by Isaiah, uh, the author of life that is God eternal, when he can say those things about that man who died on the cross, um, that's high Christology. And John 1.1, 1, 1, in his own way, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, you know, incredibly high Christology. Okay. Um, the word became flesh. The author of life is killed. That's, that's not that different from saying the word became flesh. Author of life is killed. Word became flesh. Kind of the same thing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay. 1010, uh, what do I do? 1010, 1015. Sorry, I can never. Um, let's see if I can walk a little more through this in verse 17 with you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Okay? The Christ will suffer, Isaiah 53. He can't really get off of Isaiah. He doesn't. He's sort of obsessed with Isaiah. Um, that the Christ would suffer, 19, repent therefore call to repentance. Okay? Law. He has preached law. Okay? Law meaning condemnation. That's what he's been doing that paragraph before. He has been condemning them for their sins. Denied, rejected, killed. Um, preferred a murderer to God. Okay? Um, now he, call, he, he preaches the law. He pivots by calling them to repent. And now he'll preach the gospel. Um, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be okay here there's there's th uh, three things there's three gospel statements your sins may be blotted out verse 20 times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may uh, uh, well that he may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus whom heaven and earth must receive until the time for restoring all things about what God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Okay, so here, your sins are blotted out, you're receiving spiritual refreshing, and there is the restoration of all things. That is a very fully packed, full, in just a few words, a very highly developed presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins, spiritual refreshment, joy, relief, release, leaping like deer and restoration total rebirth of the world of all things right Does that, is that what it says uh, restoration of all things not just men all things will be restored um, there's a uh, there's a passage in Matthew 19 which I'll read read to you passage Jesus 9, Matthew 19 verse 28 Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, in, in the ESV translation, it translates that, in the new world. But the Greek really would say, like, in the new birth, in the regenerate, okay, in, uh, which is kind of the same thing, in the, in the renew world, in the reborn world. 
Okay, so uh, this new creation theme is what I want to continually point to, especially in the healings and exorcism. And uh, 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 I, I, I have been meaning to, and so I'm going to go right now to Romans 8. If you have a Bible and can look this up, uh, please do. Okay, this may be the last thing we do. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. Now, this is Paul. It's not Peter. He's not, Paul is not present in Acts 3. He's not a Christian yet in Acts 3. And, and so Paul has his own way of saying things. And he's talking about something very similar. Or he's talking about the same thing in his own way. Acts chapter, or Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not with comparing worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Okay? So you can't, you can't sort of symbolize, he says creation like four times. You can't sort of symbolize by that he means all humans. He's just, no, because he says creation and us. Okay? Uh, two, two, two things. Uh, and we ourselves... Uh, no, I've totally lost this. Okay, 23. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons. That is, the redemption of our bodies. For this hope we were saved. Okay. Um, if you would like to meditate on a passage of Scripture for the coming week, <laughs> I recommend that one. Take, take Romans 8, verses 18, 23. Read it every day. Uh, and, and pray about it because it is, um, I think, a much under-read uh, under um, bit of Romans, okay, of the, of the, of the, what, the, you know, all things, the whole world, okay, will be renewed and reborn and perfected and glorified and glorify the Creator, including our very bodies. And that's kind of one of my key points continually as a bioethicist, that our bodies are part of us. We are not, your body is not a container of your soul. Your body is, and, it, and though it is lame from birth, or whatever, and corrupted by evil, okay, uh, it will be redeemed and glorified along with all things. Okay, all right, so... So I, f I feel like I'm preaching a little bit more than, than teaching, but I, to me it's a really blurry line between the two things. Um, okay, so let's, let's, let's leave it there, and we'll maybe say a couple more words about that, and then more next time, next week. Thank you for your time. <laughs>